allowing God to mold you and do what he wants you to become. Now, that can be a painful process, but it is so worth it. I want to welcome you again to uh, say a big welcome to everyone watching online. Uh, we are so glad you are with us today. Uh, my name is Bob Irving. I am one of the pastors here at NBC, and I have the great privilege of opening God's word for you today. Now, if you're just joining us, we're in a series on the book of Romans uh, that's going to take us through the end of June. We started all the way back in January, and now we've come to Romans chapter 12, some of the most famous verses in all of the book of Romans. And so as we begin today, I would invite you to read Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 8 with me. So let's read. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members as one, uh, members one, of, one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let's, let us use them. If prophecy in, propor in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is God's word, and as we begin, let's pray today. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word Lord, we thank you for the gospel which transforms hearts and makes us more and more like your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray this morning for everybody who is watching with us today, Lord, uh, or if you're listening to this later on, Lord, I pray that you would just be moving on hearts and that you would receive the glory and that we would leave today truly transformed for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I was a child in the 1980s, I was captured by the animated TV show Transformers. And if you're not familiar or you weren't a fan, Transformers was a show about living alien robots who escaped a war on their planet to come to Earth. Now, the good guys were the Autobots, led by the coolest robot ever, Optimus Prime. The bad guys were the Decepticons, led by the evil Megatron. Now, the 1980s cartoon was turned into a multi-million multi dollar franchise um, about a decade ago, and so most people watching today probably know the Transformers from the movies. But I got to tell you, with somebody who grew up with them, it was so cool to watch uh, them come to life on the screen with modern digital technology. Now, there's one scene in the first movie that captures the wonder of the Transformers, the main human character is a guy named Sam Witwicky, a high school student who goes with his father to buy his first car. At a used car dealership, they find an old yellow Chevy Camaro, and they purchase it for $5,000. But later that night, the car actually starts driving itself. And so Sam jumps on his bike, he follows it, only to find out with shock and amazement that his car can transform 
into one of these giant robots. That's right, the robots have the ability to change their form because they needed a way to disguise themselves so humans could not see them. And the Autobots lived up to their name, they become cars. Except Optimus Prime, who was a Mack truck, so cool. They would drive around as cars and no one knew the difference, that is, until the Decepticons attacked, and when that happened, the Autobots would transform to reveal their true selves and fight off the enemy. Now, because the show was about a bunch of robots hiding in disguise, the tagline for them was this, there is more than meets the eye with the Transformers. In other words, those cars were not what they appear to be, there is something more to them. Now, friends, I know that many of you listening today are not fans of Transformers, but the premise of the show is at the heart of our passage in Romans 12 today, transformation. And I'll go even further to say this passage is about total transformation. And so if you're a Christian, Christian listening today, God's desire is to see you transformed into the image and likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. But here's the tension I think many of us feel. Just like the Transformers, we like to stay hidden. Right? We like to disguise ourselves. And when we stay hidden, we are not allowing God to transform us into who he's calling us to become. And you may ask, well, how do we stay hidden? In many cases, we embrace cultural narratives about identity and success. So we have to have that car or that house or attend that school. And we're afraid to stand out and be different. In other situations, we're, we're timid about sharing our beliefs for fear that difficult conversations will come up or we'll be shamed. It's much easier to stay disguised like the Transformers than reveal our true selves to others because that may lead to a battle. Church, today I want to challenge us to stop disguising ourselves and embrace the total transformation which comes through the power of the gospel. I want people to look at us and say, there is more than meets the eye with those people. Paul's goal in Romans is not just to fill us with knowledge about theological doctrines. It is to see us changed and to become more like his son. And Romans chapter 12, particularly verses 1 and 2, speak to this idea. And so I want to share with you three steps today to total transformation. The first step is that we have to embrace our weakness. The second step... And when we do the first one, is that we'll experience true worship. And then finally, we must expose the world's lies. As we follow those principles, it will unlock the key to total transformation. So first, we have to embrace our weakness. Now, this first point immediately bumps up against cultural narratives we have likely believed. I'll give you an example. You're probably familiar with this bracelet. It's very familiar. It was worn famously by Lance Armstrong. Now, the Live Strong Foundation fights against cancer, and the message is this. In your moment of weakness, you need to find strength inside yourself to fight for life. Now, after Hurricane Sandy came through New Jersey in 2012, we adopted a similar slogan, Jersey Strong. In our moment of despair, we as people of the state needed to dig deep inside ourselves and find the strength to recover. Now, I'm not suggesting that fighting cancer 
We're striving for recovery are poor endeavors. Many who have been sick or are sick or have run or do run a business know how difficult this fight is. What I am saying is that we need to examine where our strength really and truly comes from. And so let's look at what Paul says in Romans 11.36. He writes this, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So sit with this verse for just a moment. This is an extremely important verse. It is the culmination of everything Paul has been expounding upon for 11 chapters. Right, Paul, Paul in Romans has laid out a theology of sin and redemption. He has discussed our growth in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. He has made clear the plan of salvation for all people and his promises for the Jewish people. And at the end of all that, he makes it clear God is the center of everything. It is all about him. God is gracious to his people. He is faithful to his people. He is in control of all things, and he is worthy of praise. In fact, all of the theology was meant to lead us to worship of our great God. The world, the story of the world, is God's story. It's all about him. It's not about us. In fact, turn to your neighbor at home if you're with somebody and say, it's not about me, it's about God. Right? It's not about me, it's about God. Go, turn to your neighbor and tell him that. Here's the thing, though. We live like, like it's all about us. We live life like it's all about us. So think about it this way. Picture, picture going to a birthday party for a three-year-old. Now let's just say, for argument's sake, that little Bobby is having this birthday party, right? And everyone brings him presents. He has presents all around him, and he's about to open them when suddenly, and to your horror, your kid... Your child runs over to the presents and starts opening them quicker than little Bobby can open them. And everyone's looking at you and judging you and you're feeling, oh my gosh, what do I do? So you go to your child, you pull them aside, and you explain gently, I'm sure, gently to them, these aren't your presents. This isn't your party. It's little Bobby's party. And friends, that is the same thing we do with God. Because we think it's all about us. We think we're stronger than God. We think that we can beat our trials on our own. We live life like we're actually stronger than we are. And so Paul reminds us of where our strength and purpose truly comes from. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Now, did you catch that? In 1136, Paul told us that God is the center of all things. In 12.1, he reminds us that God had mercy upon us. In fact, he, does, he doesn't just remind us. It says he appeals to us. In other words, he's pleading with us. That word could be translated as implore or beseech. Now, in my opinion... This is the biggest transition statement in the whole Bible. For 11 chapters, again, Paul was speaking in the indicative, meaning he was giving us truthful statements. But in 12.1, he shifts to the imperative, meaning now he's telling us, he's commanding us how to respond. God is the center of all things, therefore. 
And it's been famously said, whenever you see a therefore, you need to ask yourself, and I can hear you at home saying it, what is it there for? So for the next four chapters of this letter, Paul wants to make clear that he is building the imperatives on the rest of the, of the, in the rest of the letter on the indicatives, on the theology that came before in Romans 1 to 11. In order for us to live out these imperatives, we need to understand the first few verses of Romans 12. And he starts by telling us to embrace our weakness. So take note of that word, mercy. Paul is making his appeal based on the mercy of God in Christ. And if you miss the mercy of God in Christ in chapters 1 to 11, pause here, go all the way back and read all those chapters again until you get it. God has been merciful to us in Christ. He saved us when we did not deserve saving. And in these two verses, Paul is laying out two important truths. First, God is strong. God is strong. And secondly, we are weak. We are weak. And so I have to emphasize here that we have to guess, get this order right, and we have to live like it's true, because many of us live like the opposite is true. We live like we are strong and God is weak. Think about it. And, and this is what I was saying at the beginning about these cultural narratives we believe, because we're told by the world that we have to be strong in life, right? The strong survive. God helps those who help themselves, right? Not in the Bible. If you don't believe this, ask yourself the question, do I have trouble asking for help? Right now, you, you might need help grocery shopping, or you might need help financially. Do you have trouble asking for help in those areas? And if the answer is yes, you might be believing that you have to be strong. If we believe this, we've embraced a wrong view of God and a wrong view of ourselves. And Paul, listen, Paul gets at this idea in Romans 12.3. He says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. In other words, when we think we're stronger than God, we need some sobriety. We need to remember God is the one giving the grace, not the other way around. We need sober judgment. And I think many of us are living out this second paradigm. Again, we believe we're strong and God is weak. And, and listen, I mean that functionally in your life. Because we can say all the right things theologically, but then live a completely different way. I'll give you an example. We all likely know somebody who struggled with addictions. Alcohol, drugs, viewing inappropriate material, to name a few. And so just, just picture that, you know, that that person you know like that, and out of love and concern, you suggest this person see a counselor. And so they go and they attend a session, and they come home and announce to you, I don't need counseling, I can handle this on my own. How does that make you feel? Discouraged? Devastated? Afraid? Angry? What I want you to see is that this is how we all are. We think we're strong, that we have to be strong. 
But what we need is sober judgment. So do you functionally live like you are strong and God is weak? If you do, you have a wrong view of God and a wrong view of yourself. See, the picture Paul is painting here is that God is strong and we are weak. We need to embrace our weakness and run to Jesus. Every Christian had this experience at conversion, and we need to keep living it out. Total transformation begins by never forgetting the mercy of God. Let me offer a contrasting picture to the illustration I just shared. World Magazine recently published an article about a helicopter rescue in New York City. Now, as you know, New York City has been the center of the COVID-19 outbreak. And at the beginning of April, some of the area hospitals in New York were overwhelmed with patients needing oxygen and resources. And so in desperation, they called for help from other area hospitals as far as Maryland and Massachusetts, Connecticut, Pennsylvania. And those hospitals sent helicopters to JFK Airport. A fleet of 11 medical helicopters converged at the airport and transported 28 intubated patients to their hospitals because the New York City hospitals didn't have enough oxygen. So picture that scene, 11 helicopters, 28 patients coming together, 28 patients gasping for breath, being transported to other facilities that had more resources. Help was needed and help came. And friends, that is what God did for us. Christian, that is a picture of God's mercy that when we were gasping for air, he sent a fleet of helicopters to save us, to put oxygen back in our lungs. Never forget that. God is strong. We are weak. And when we embrace our weakness, we can move to the next step of total transformation, which is to experience true worship. Now consider the question, what do you think worship is? Right? Is it singing? Well, sadly, we haven't been together in the same room for quite some time now. And I got to tell you, and I know you've heard it before, I miss you. Like, we as a leadership team, we miss you. We miss being together because there's something about hundreds of voices coming into a room and loudly singing truths about God as we worship him. I know we long to be together and in unity praising our God. It's an experience. But what is true worship? Because worship is more than simply coming together and singing, and and to that end, we have to acknowledge that worship still happens. In this current moment, we should never think the church is closed, right? No, no, no. Our campus may be closed to some activities right now, but the church is most definitely open for business, right? Worship is happening in the homes and lives of God's people. I hear stories every week of people worshiping God through their service and love, even as I'm sure you're, you're blaring worship music on, on your car radio or in your home. What does Paul say about worship? He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to, to what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So with the foundation of God's mercy given to us, now we can discuss worship. What does he say? He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And this command should never be separated from the previous phrase. God's mercy has power over us. His grace reigns in us. We must respond. 
So let's break these verses down further. Let's, let's first look at that term, present your bodies, which is used here to communicate the presentation of an offering. Now, when we, as modern listeners, think about an offering, we picture ushers coming down the aisle to receive financial gifts. And Paul here takes it much further because the word to present is a sacrificial term, meaning Paul has the Old Testament sacrifices in mind here. And the word for bodies is the Greek word soma, and it refers to the, the whole person, body and soul. So the phrase is getting at a total commitment to God in every area of your life. And then living sacrifice seems like this contradictory term, right? When people in the Old Testament made a sacrifice, what happened to the animal? It was dead, right? No, no question, that, that animal was killed. How can, we be, how can a sacrifice be living? I think this is such a cool image because Paul is reminding us that God's mercy has made us alive Don't you remember what he said in chapter 5 and 6 about Christ being raised from the dead, right? When we were dead in our sin, but we've been raised to life in Christ. Now, rather than simply killing an animal and offering it to God, our entire lives are a sacrifice. And then finally, he says, this is your spiritual worship. Now, if you're reading from a different translation, this, this phrase is notoriously difficult to translate. Literally in the Greek, it says, this is your logikos worship. And the word logikos is where we get our English word logical from. So Paul is saying, literally, this is your logical worship. And when we worship, we never think it's logical, right? What did you do in church today? Well, I worshiped logically. No. No, we would say we worshiped passionately, right? So what is Paul saying? I think he's saying that in response to God's mercy, it is is logical, it makes sense to respond by giving our whole life to him. In other words, true worship is about total commitment to God. And so our singing is an outward expression of that, but it is so much more, right? In fact, a better translation would be, this is your true and proper worship. What does that look like? This presents a problem for so many of us because when we think about our commitment to God, we think about Sunday morning. And you may say, well, I'm committed to God because I attended church three times last month. But that's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying that if you're a Christian, God's transformational mercy should be reflected in every area of your life. So, So for the professional business person, God's mercy toward you should change the way you, should should affect your business practices and how you treat your employees. If you're a teenager, God's mercy toward you should transform the way you treat your friends and your classmates. And I recognize that some teenagers can be gossipy and they can be cruel, but as a follower of Christ, rise above that. Do your schoolwork with excellence. In our families, God's mercy toward us should transform our relationships. We should should be more patient and forgiving. We should be kind and caring with our words. We We should seek to serve one another. 
This is what it means to present your bodies in every aspect of your life as an act of worship. So teenagers, I bet you never thought that when you clean the house for your mom, it could be an act of worship. It is a living sacrifice you're making. It pleases God. The parents said amen. And it's an act of worship. What is worship? Well, to take this beyond singing, one of my mentors gave me a, a helpful paradigm a number of years ago. He said, he said, if you want to know what you truly worship, consider three areas, glory, dedication, and sacrifice. So first ask, who or what do I glory in? What is the organizing center of my life? What do I think about before I go to sleep and when I wake up? That is what you glory in. It's, it's the thing or person or activity you can't live without. And for some of us, honestly, the person you glory in is yourself. Right? In today's world, nearly everyone has a camera on their phone, which has led to the rise of people always taking selfies. Now, selfies are not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, I like to indulge in this practice from time to time. Uh, however, however, some people are taking so many selfies, they're getting what's been termed selfie wrist. Actually, a medical term that came up. Tina Choi, uh, 29, works in digital media promotion, and she says a successful selfie can raise the profile and income of her clients. Choi believes that... Uh, that selfies are an effective way of sharing a sense of yourself. She said it's, it's really about telling a story where you're at, what you're doing, how active you are, okay? So that's, that's her perspective. But all that selfie taking caused tingling in her fingers and wrist and later discomfort. So selfies have side effects. And after a few months, she felt like there was this sharp pain in the corner of her wrist that actually prevented her from working. Dr. Levi Harrison said this, he said, it's actually a form of carpal tunnel syndrome because the, the hyperflexion in your wrist that appears to cause it inflames the nerve and makes it angry. He said, the problem begins when patients start hyperflexing their wrist in the rush to capture that perfect angle. The moral of the story is that taking too many selfies has side effects and you might be finding glory in yourself. Now second, ask, who or what am I dedicated to? That's the dedication. To discern that, I would suggest you look at your calendar, right? Look where you spend your time. Uh, and if there's one thing we've learned during this quarantine period, it's how to slow down. I can't tell you how many people have told me they're going to reevaluate their activities once this is all done. And third, ask, where do I make sacrifices? And the easiest way to get a baseline on that is to look at your checking account, your bank account. Where's your money going? And I know right now Amazon is getting the lion's share of our money because we want everything delivered. Um, but just look at the account on a normal basis and find where you spend your treasure. It will give a window into where and who you're truly worshiping and sacrificing to. Now, sadly, when we do this exercise, we find that our worship is not as God-honoring as we might like, right? And this is why it's so important to recognize our weakness and how much we need God, because when we think we're strong and God is weak, we will spend our time, our talent, our treasure in certain ways. 
But if we have a right view of ourselves and God, when we recognize that we're weak and God is strong, it will totally transform how we live and how we give. If you look at verses 4 to 8 of chapter 12, Paul lays out a number of spiritual gifts that can be used to build up the body of Christ. And everyone listening to this sermon has a gift. Use it as an act of worship. Some of you right now have the gift of mercy and service, and you're using your gifts to help people in need during this time. Some of you have the gift of leadership, and you're using your gift to help us think strategically through this crisis as a church. Others have the gift of generosity, and so we thank you for your gift and for helping our church and helping people in need. Friends, experiencing true worship is not simply singing. It is about our whole lives, using our time, our talent, our treasure to the glory of God. It's about loving and serving people to the glory of God. True worship is experienced when we have a right view of ourselves and God, and when that happens, we can tackle our final third step, expose the world's lies. Expose them. The world is filled with all kinds of enticing messages about fulfillment, yet they leave us empty. And so Paul sets up this dichotomy in verse 2, which shows us how transformation happens. Look at what he says. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Did you catch that? Do not be conformed, but be transformed. So let's sit with those two words for just a moment. First, what does it mean to be conformed? Now, if you remember the opening video, it used the image of the potter and the clay. In order to make the pot, the artist has to craft the pot over time. It is molded in the hands of the potter. And if you look in the scriptures, we read that God is described as the potter and we are the clay. But if we're not careful, we can be molded by the world and its messages also. Let me give you a visual image of this. I brought my daughter's Play-Doh with me today, okay? I imagine most people listening today have played with Play-Doh, right? It's great for kids because it develops their, their fine motor skills and it encourages creativity and they can do all different kinds of things. Right, some of you, maybe parents at home right now, you can whip out the Play-Doh and your kids can play with it as we're talking here. It's squishy, you can mold it into any shape you want it to be. But here's the thing, Play-Doh will indeed conform to any shape you want it to be, and it's conformed to the shape of the person who's shaping it. Right, so this piece of green Play-Doh will look very different if my daughter shapes it or if I shape it. So do you see what Paul's saying here? He's saying you can either be conformed to the pattern of God's, God's will, or you can be conformed to the pattern of the world's will. And his command here is to actively resist being conformed to the world. So, so stop here and think for a second. How are we conformed to the world's ways? What influences my pattern of thinking? Well, if we're Christians, we like to think it is God, but more often it's the media that we consume, things like news sources or shows we watch on Netflix or music we listen to. And I have to let you in on a, a secret if you don't know this. Every single one of those media sources has a worldview behind them. 
News sources know their audience. Television shows have an audience they're trying to reach. Advertisers have a group of people they want to sell to. In fact, was there ever a time when you saw an ad for a product that had the ability to make you want it immediately? Yeah. <laughs> if we're not careful, our minds can be conformed very quickly to what the world is selling and their belief system. And Paul says here, do not be what? Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. In other words, don't let the world shape your pl the Play-Doh. I'll give you another example of how the world is shaping our minds right now. I'll put it in one word, fear. Right? The world is teaching us to be afraid all the time. And guess what? We're feeding our fears. Our minds and hearts are so filled with the latest headlines about the dysfunction in the government or the latest COVID cases in New Jersey or the unemployment rate, but we have a choice. We can feed our fears, or we can feed our fears and let them shape the Play-Doh, or we can feed our faith. And, and we resist conforming to the world by being transformed. Now, how are we transformed? He says we're transformed by the renewal of our mind. And the Greek word for transformed is metamorpho, which is where we get our English word metamorphosis from. And that can be defined this way. It's a change of the form or nature of a thing or person into a completely different one by natural or supernatural means. In other words, you were one thing and now you're something different. And notice again, this is a command, right? This is not a suggestion. Paul is not saying, oh, it would be nice if you were transformed. No. He's saying, stop conforming, transform. How? By the renewal of your mind. Now, commentators suggest that in contrast to transform, uh, in, con in contrast to conform, transform refers to an inward and genuine resemblance. In other, in other words, conforming is superficial, but transformation is deep and true. That's what Paul's after. That's what God is after. The battlefield is the mind which refers to our practical reason and moral conscience. Our minds, he's saying, need to be reprogrammed to forget all the garbage the world taught us. We now need to be filled with the things of the Spirit of God. But this is not an overnight endeavor. In fact, let me speak to our older saints for just one second. I want you to think about your life. Consider the way you thought when you were a teenager. You would probably agree you were more naive then than you are today. Think about the way you thought as a young adult or in midlife. Right? Your mind changed. You, you would make different decisions in each of those seasons of life than you would today. So that the point I'm making is that transformation doesn't happen overnight. Paul's command is that we need to be constantly and consistently resisting, conforming to the world and always pursue the transformation that happens by the gospel. So think about the Plato again. Who or what is shaping, is shaping your Plato? The world or Jesus? Are we filled with fear based on the world's headlines or faith based on the word of God? Author and speaker Dr. Michael Brown writes this, and I think it's really helpful. So let's look at this. He says, feed your faith, starve your fears, 
And this is how we do it. Rather than watching and reading the news day and night, thereby filling our hearts and minds with fearful projections and bad reports, we fill our hearts and minds with God's word. We read the word. We speak the word. We memorize the word. We sing the word. We keep the word before us day and night. We repeat it and recite it. And little by little, our souls are washed. Our minds are renewed and our fears are replaced by faith. Rock solid, Bible-based faith. Now friends, I don't know about you, but I want my Plato, the Plato that is me, to be shaped by the Word of God. If you want your mind to be renewed, read the Word. It's the antidote. It's the vaccine against conforming to the world's disease. It exposes the world's lies, and it gives you a right view of yourself and a right view of God. You will have no question after reading the Word that God is strong and you are weak. Listen to some of these truths from God's Word. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous. And then you'll have good success. Paul wrote this to the church in Colossae. He said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And this admonition to the Philippians, he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Friends, are you allowing the Word of God to renew your mind? Because when you do, it will transform your fear into faith. And it will cause you to fall on your face in worship of our great and merciful God. When you read the Word of God, your view of the world changes. And, and worldview matters, right? It affects everything we do in life. But this transformation by the renewing of your mind doesn't just change your worldview, it also gives you power the power to discern God's will. Look at what Paul says and how he finishes. He says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, every Christian at some point in their life has asked, what is God's will for me? Even non-Christians ask this question. And usually those questions revolve around big life decisions like who should I marry or where should I live or what job and career should I go into. But Paul, Paul doesn't categorize it like this in this verse. He simply says, stop conforming to the world. If you allow the word of God to transform your mind, then you may be able to test and discern God's will. What does that mean? Well, I believe Paul is talking here about God's moral will. And so as we grow in Christ's likeness, there will be less questions we wrestle with because we mature and the answers will be clearer to us. In fact, one of my seminary professors, Craig Blomberg, uh, gave me a different perspective on God's will. He said this, he said, it's been said 
that as we grow in our understanding of God's moral will, He may reveal His more specific will for our lives. In other words, the closer you get to Jesus, the more your heart and mind will be aligned with His will. Life will be clearer, right? So if you want to know God's will for your life, get closer to Jesus. Indisputable. Friends, don't you want this for your life? I know there's so many out there listening today who are afraid and their lives have been upended. I know so many are wondering what will happen next in our lives. What will the new normal look like? And I don't have all the answers to those, I got to tell you, but there is one thing I know for certain. God's word remains the same. God's mercy remains the same. God's strength remains the same. And his desire for all of us who are in Christ is total transformation. And this happens when we take those three steps, when we embrace our weakness, when we know that God is strong and we are weak, when we experience true worship, this whole of life experience, and when we expose the world's lies. And when we do that, it frees our minds to grow in faith and starve our fears. And as we do these things, the will of God will be more and more and more clear to us every day because we start to wake up from the spell that we've been living under in this world. J.R.R. Tolkien famously wrote The Lord of the Rings in 1954. And in the middle chapter of his trilogy, we meet King Theoden, the ruler of the area known as Rohan, King Theoden has been put under a spell by the evil wizard Saruman. The wizard has sent one of his henchmen, a man named Wormtongue, to control Theoden from behind the scenes. Theoden's mind has become cloudy, asleep, unable to discern right from wrong. His mind is controlled by the wizard, the evil wizard. Now, there's a scene in the movie adaptation where Gandalf, the good wizard, shows up at Rohan needing Theoden's help. And he knows Theoden's enslaved, and he must break the spell. So he enters the king's courtroom. He and his friends fight their way to the king, and in a fierce struggle with Saruman, he breaks the spell, and King Theoden wakes up. He's able to see again and to think again. And once he's thinking clearly, he banishes Wormtongue from his presence and resumes his role as king. Friends, Some of us listening today are like Theoden. We're under the spell of the world, and we need Jesus to set us free. We need to wake up from the spell. We need our minds to be renewed so we can test and discern God's will. And when we do, it will lead to total and complete transformation. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, and I'll invite the worship team to come up for one final song. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray for my friends listening today. I pray that we would wake up from the spell. I pray that we would recognize that we are clay and you are the potter. We're the Play-Doh, Lord. You desire to gently and lovingly conform us to the image of your Son. Help us, Lord, to rely on your strength, not ours. May we worship you with our whole lives and open our eyes to see the lies we've been believing while you give us the strength to resist conforming to this world. Our desire is total transformation for your glory and for the sake 
of the gospel. In Jesus' precious name we pray that. Amen and amen.